Pew Bible, the Red Pew Bible, it's on page 1,115. You say, man, how did he know that? I just looked. Uh, 1,115. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of John, the fifth chapter. And Logan was leading us through the word last week. And I so appreciated how he brought out the nuance of this, this man who was, uh, who was in Jerusalem at the Bethesda Gate, who was looking every day for healing but never able to find it because he said that, uh, that other people were getting to the pool where they believed that an angel would come and touch the water and disturb it. And if they got to the water before anyone else, then they would receive a healing. And so one of the things that was amazing about it was that this man had been there for numbers of years, decades. Every morning he'd wake up, he'd come, and he'd look for the opportunity to be healed, and he'd go home disappointed until one day Jesus came and asked him, do you want to be healed? The most amazing thing happened. He was healed. He, he heard Jesus say, rise up, take your mat, and go home. And he did. You can imagine how strange that must have felt. I've talked to people who have been married for for decades who suddenly wake up and, and know that they're alone because their spouse has died and they, they don't start the day in the way they did before. Their days are changed forever. I've talked to people who have had the diagnosis of cancer and as they come in they hear the doctor say you only have three months to live. Their whole perspective of life changes. I've talked to people who have told me that their spouse have said I no longer love you and don't want to be in a marriage with you anymore. And their whole perspective of life changed in that moment. And so when you think of this man who was healed, you would think, well, he, it, was, it was rosy glasses. Everything was perfect from that, on, from that point on. Uh, some of you mistakenly had come to Christ believing that Christ would fix your problem and somehow in this life you would have all the gold and resources and things you need and you found out that following Christ takes very great dedication. It takes sacrifice. It takes a denial of ourselves in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in his teachings. And so it's no surprise then that when you find his teaching in our day that you don't find people necessarily warming up to Jesus because Jesus tells us that if we're going to love him and love God, we have to give up certain things in our lives that really are sinful and destructive to us in the long run. And so, not surprisingly, you find people today who have a love-hate relationship with Jesus. They like the Jesus they have created who says, I will forgive you of your sins, but they're not so certain they want to follow the Jesus who says, you must repent and follow me. And so it's no surprise, as we've come from that story, uh, you'll find that this is is really kind of overwhelming because everything we've studied so far in the first five chapters of, Jesus, of, of John about Jesus only makes you want to get closer to him until you come to this verse and that verse we're reading this morning and I invite you, if you would, let's, uh, let's stand as we hear God's word this morning. John continues right after the healing at the pool of, beside the gate at Bethesda. He says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day. 
and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, but he can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, and whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, Time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. This is the word of, oh, excuse me, one more verse. Do not be amazed at this, for the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Um, this morning as we get into this passage, did you notice how convoluted and hard it was to follow that? Can you say amen? Because as you look through this passage, you begin to say, what in the world is Jesus saying? How are we to understand this passage? And more importantly, what is it that we're saying about Jesus? What is it that John wants us to see about this Savior who has come to save you from the wrath of God? We don't think in those terms anymore, but it's true. If you look at the world, the world is under the wrath of God. What is happening in Ukraine with Russia is, is part of the wrath of God. What's happening with the, with the spread of cancer and other, other things that are causing death upon the face of the earth is the wrath of God. Why? Because, because it is a natural outcome of a world that rejected its creator. It is the natural outcome of a world that has rejected its creator. Instead of having peace, we have war. Instead of having, having a, a purpose in life, we, we tend to fill our life with material possessions thinking that brings us meaning and purpose, and it doesn't. I know a lot of people who have a lot of possessions that are very unhappy. And so one of the things that is being competitive in our world is the Jesus of the scriptures and how he is being proclaimed in the world. It is so incredibly frightening to me because this Jesus we have come to love in John is a Jesus who has come to do something that we can't do for ourselves and to lead us in places we wouldn't go unless he would bid us follow him. 
Now, why do I say all that? Well, I want you to notice that with all that we see from the Gospel of John, you want to love Jesus and you want to follow him, but there's also this, this thread that runs through, and that is that the only reason we do this is because we know that life the meaning of life, its purpose, its value, its richness, its whole joy is when we come to know God through Jesus Christ. That's the real joy of living. But that joy isn't always known by everyone in the world. In fact, majority of people probably don't know that joy. And what Jesus is teaching us here about himself is why is it that some people don't and why some people do? And more importantly, who decides? Who decides who knows this joy? And we oftentimes, especially as American Christians, think, well, it's all up to me. And we find out that's not true this morning. Let me show you very quickly. First, please notice it says that Jesus was persecuted and rejected. Persecuted and rejected. I'll never, I'll never understand how this could be the case when someone has healed someone from the pool and the, at the gate of Bethesda. He, he actually helped a man get up and walk who had been lame for years. And as that happened, people became angry. Why? Why did they become angry? Well, because of that miracle that John records for us, the miracle that Jesus did. And by the way, did you know there were probably scores of other people who were there with that man also seeking healing and yet Jesus chose him that one man what about the rest of them Jesus it was the purpose of God not to have everyone healed it was the purpose of God to take this one man and explain who Jesus is and why he's come you say well what is that about well please notice when Jesus did this, it began a conflict in people's hearts. The religious leaders of the day saw him do this work, this healing. And it wasn't just this healing. It was other healings that John doesn't record for us, apparently, because he was doing them on the Sabbath. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to you, probably, as Americans, but the Sabbath is such a holy day in certain parts of the world that you do not do certain things or you'll be locked up in jail or you'll be scourged or beaten. You don't, you don't really understand this until maybe you go to Jerusalem. When uh, the year that Cindy and I came to, came to Mooresville, we actually had a wonderful trip with Dr. Gary Pratico from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He was my Old Testament professor. We used to call him the Velvet Hammer. He was teaching us Hebrew, and whenever we got something wrong, he would let you know you had it completely wrong, but he would do it in a gentle way, so you, weren't, you were cracked but not crushed. But that trip, I got to see and know him in ways I'd never seen and known him before. It was absolutely refreshing until we got to Jerusalem. It was a Saturday morning. I had gone down from my room to the, to the front desk to get a paper to find out the local news. And as I got back to the elevators, I pushed the button and waited for the elevator to open. It opened, I got on it, and it went to the even floors. Two, four, six, eight, ten. And then it went back down. Ten, eight, six, four, two. And then one. And I thought, well, there's something wrong. I've got to get off on the sixth or fifth floor. So I pushed the number five button. 
And as I pushed the number five button, the elevator went back up to even floors. And I thought, gosh, this thing is broken. And so I went back to the desk and I looked at the person behind it and I said, look, you've got a problem with your elevators. I can't get back to the fifth floor. And he goes, oh, Mr. Howard, I'm sorry. You don't understand. Today's the Sabbath. We don't push buttons. That's work. I said, what? He said, that's work. You don't push buttons in the hotel. If you want to get off on odd floors, you get on the left elevator. If you want to get off on even floors, you get on the right elevator. The elevators operate automatically. Well, sure enough, I got back to my room and I tried to cut on the TV. Guess what? It wouldn't turn on. It was weird. And it was weird because the only thing I can compare it to, and many of you are too young to know this, what they called in the Carolinas the old blue laws. Do you remember those? You could go to a store, but you could not buy certain things. You couldn't buy liquor. Forget it. There's no liquor sold on Sunday. And yet, as a country, we gave up all that because we said we want the freedom to have purchasing power at any time of the day or night. Do y'all remember when TVs actually ended their telecast at 12 o'clock midnight? You remember that? And they ended with a patriotic salute to our country? How could things change so much? Well, maybe because we've forgotten what the Sabbath is. Or maybe we made a mistake in teaching about the Sabbath in ways that was never meant to be ta taught. Because in the work on the Sabbath, Jesus was healing. And he says something that really is quite startling. He says in answer or in defending his actions of what he did, he said, my father is always, this is verse 17 if you have your Bible open, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am at work. Okay, there it is. Jesus is sinning. That's what the Pharisees thought. He's a sinner. He's working on the Sabbath. And you say, is that true? Well, the amazing part is if you go back and look at the Sabbath in the Old Testament, that concept of Sabbath was that, that it began with the day of creation, that six days God made the heavens and the earth and everything in it and then rested on the seventh from his creation. But never does the Bible lead us to believe that God just sat there because the Bible teaches us that God is not only the creator, he's the sustainer of creation and he's also the redeemer of creation. And so in light of that, the Jews in the Old Testament never understood as God being completely passive in his care of his creation. He just simply ceased work of creating on the seventh day and then gave that as a model for us that six days you're to labor, you're to do your secular labor, but the seventh day, that one day in seven, you are to spend time refreshing your soul before the Lord. To seek him and love him and pursue him with all your love, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all yourself. What happened by the time Jesus walked on the face of the earth was that that practice of the Sabbath had de-evolved into a legalistic code. Where the Jews began to say, well you can do this, you can't do that. You can do this, you can't do that. You can do this, you can't do that. 
when I was in that motel in Jerusalem, one of the things that was amazing to me is, do you remember the Sabbath commandment? Do you remember that Sabbath commandment? Remember what it was, the fourth commandment? Do you know how Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath unto the Lord. You shall not do any work, neither your manservant, maidservant, your ox, your ass, nor any stranger in, this, in your gates. You shall not do that. <laughs> I went to this restaurant the same day in the King David Hotel, and there was a very religious Jewish man who wanted another bottle of wine, but he was, he was out of luck because it was the Sabbath, right? You're not supposed to have any maidservants or manservants waiting on you, except if you're Arab. You see, the Arabs didn't hold Sabbath that day. They held Sabbath the next day or maybe the day before. So the hotel hired Muslims to serve the Jews on the Sabbath. See how convoluted that is? say well did Jesus sin no you see when Jesus said my father is at work and so I am at work he's reaching all the way back to the first chapter of John where it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God you see the God who created the Sabbath rest for you was now at work redeeming his people and this is the work that Jesus was doing. My father is at work, and I am at work. But the Jews saw him heal someone on the Sabbath, glorifying God the Father, and they hated him. They hated him. It says from that point on, they wanted to kill him. That's pretty big hate, don't you think? The second thing it says is that he made himself equal with God. Now, in our reading of the text, we may not really see the nuance of this, but when Jesus said, my father, he's not talking our father. He was directly linking himself to God the Father in such a way that when the Pharisees heard him say that, they knew instinctively that what Jesus was indicating was that his relationship with God was different than anyone else's that had ever been born under heaven. That this relationship Jesus was claiming was to be God. There are insane asylums filled with people who think they're God. You can go to Broughton in Marion, North Carolina and find them. And so it begs the question, when you and I read the Gospel of John and we come to this fifth chapter, you and I are forced to make a decision here because you and I read this and then we have to ask, answer the question, is Josh McDowell right in his book, More Than a Carpenter? Is the choice very clear? Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he really God in the flesh? God made man. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? 
You see, there is no coldness here that we can have. We have to make a decision in the gospel as we read. Do I understand this enough to realize that if I leave here without bowing my knee to Christ, I have rejected him. I have, in essence, killed Jesus. And that's what people do when they hear the gospel and they say, you know, I understand that he died for my sins. I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand I'm separated from God. Would you like to receive Christ? No, not really. I'm really happy where I am right now. They've basically crucified Christ in their hearts. They said, I want no part of him. Which in essence is killing When you get into the chapter, you get a little more deeper into this relationship that God reveals for us about Jesus. It really is quite powerful. He says, secondly, not only was Jesus persecuted and rejected, but he says, secondly, that Jesus makes it very clear that his work is not his work. It is the Father's work. Now, in reading this, I really tried to come up with a way of explaining this to you because it really is an involved, deep thinking verse for us to contemplate about Jesus' relationship to God the Father. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the Trinity. That word Trinity is not used in the Bible anywhere in the New Testament, but yet it is all over the place when you read the New Testament, and this is one place it is. When you look at this, the Father's and the Son's work, what we're finding is that first that Jesus says that he has come to give life. God has come to give life to the world through Jesus Christ. You say, well, wait a minute. The, the world is already alive. No, no, you don't understand. Life in the sense of knowing and loving and serving God. That's life. Knowing, loving, and serving the living God. That is life. But the world is in darkness. Meaning your neighbor who may not know Christ, who may not be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, he is or she is living in a darkness of life where they think they're having the time of their life. But they're dead to God. Very powerful, isn't it? Look in verse 19. He says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. So what's the relationship there? Well, the best way I can explain it to you, and this is when it comes to illustrating God, there is no illustration that can illustrate God. Can you say amen? amen. I mean, there really isn't. But think of Jesus as a glove and the father as a hand that's in the glove. We know that God is spirit. He does not have a body like men, and yet he became flesh, and he became a man like us in every way except without sin. And so when Jesus appeared on the face of the earth, he was like a glove, and the Father was in him and worked through him, and he was so, so conjoined to the Father that he never did anything of his own volition or will nor does the Father do anything of the Son's will. Their relationship is such that they both are working in the same vein at the same time because they're one God. And in that oneness, they are accomplishing that work of redemption. 
And that explains why this one man was picked out of all the other people at the pool of Bethesda, because in that picking of that one man, Jesus showed how the Father is at work through the Son to redeem those who were lost in their sins, who were hopelessly separated from God. Jesus says, I have come to give life and life in abundance. What does that mean? God loves you so much, he wants to pour in your life so much blessing, so much love, so much assurance that you are forgiven and cleansed and belong to him, that you would never live another day on this earth with the worry that life can bring. You say, what? You find out tomorrow you've got cancer and you're dying? I'm not worried. Why? Because I belong in body and soul and life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit God's purpose. What? For my salvation. Isn't that glorious? That's the Heidelberg Catechism, first question. And you see this whole joy of knowing that, y'all. The joy of having that serenity that I belong to Christ. The natural outcome of that is wanting to love him and please him, just like the son wanting to love and please the father. You see, you cannot touch the grace of Christ without being changed by it, can you? You can't. When the love of God comes into your heart, you begin, to, you begin to be transformed continually. Now, here's why they wanted to kill Jesus. Because they didn't want to be transformed. They didn't want to bow to God. They were not converted. One of the things that amazes me is, is that the one who hears and believes has eternal life. What does that mean? It means that Jesus says when his word goes out and his teaching goes that I, that I have come to give life and through the cross I am making that possible for you. When you have believed upon that, you have crossed over to eternal life. What does that mean? It means you have come to a place where you now, with all its security, all its all its riches, all its tremendous benefits, you have come to a place where you're now alive to God. You can walk with God. You can talk with God. You have no shame anymore to keep you from him. He has paid it all and taken away all the enmity that once existed so that you are now called a child of God. Did you hear that? The child of God. I love that. My daughter was home this past week. I would have given her the kitchen sink just to see her again and be with I would have given her the I would have given her the house if she would have asked. Why? Because of the tremendous love that I have for her. Well, that's how much God loves you and more. And that eternal life is that security we have in knowing that love. But imagine, it also says the one who rejects his him, rejects Jesus is judged. Why are they judged? Because they're still in that state of 
wrath of unrepentant lifestyle. And that brings us to that, that final part of this sermon that I have to finish up with very quickly. Who then decides who is in Jesus and who doesn't? Who decides that? Does the session, does the session get together and say, okay, we're going to pick out who's in Jesus and who is not? The answer is no. The session can't do that. Some of you look at the pastor and say, oh, the pastor, you know, he's so wise. You can see the halo. It's kind of bouncing off the light right now. It just sits right above his head, right? The glare that comes off my, my beautiful shiny head. The, the pastor doesn't decide this. Who does? Jesus. Jesus does. And this is what really angered the Pharisees even more. Because they had built a system of belief that they could do some good work and in doing that good work they could earn God's approval and their satisfactions and their salvation, I should say. But Jesus said no, no. That Jesus was given authority to be the judge by the Father. Do you know in the whole of the Old Testament the only one who would be the judge of humanity was God the Father? And now Jesus is teaching us that this God, our Father, has now given it to Jesus. What does that mean? It means there is no other way of people being saved than through Jesus Christ. No other way. Now you contemplate that for a minute. Think of Vladimir Putin. Think of Adolf Hitler. Think of Joseph Stalin. Would it surprise you to know that all three of those men at one time in their lives were touched by the gospel? Stalin was actually going to seminary. Hitler had actually thought of becoming a priest. What happened? They could not bow the knee to Jesus. They couldn't follow him. They thought life was much more simplistic. They could, could control it, mold it, force it on others. But here's the glorious news about this Jesus. And this is the thing that just shocks me the most. I am a sinner undeserving of God's love and mercy. And God was just to forgive me. How was he just? By giving himself for my sins and paying them on the cross. He is now only he is not able, now, now, now not only able to be loving, he is able to be just in the sense that sin is paid for in full. And through his work of the cross, I'm given life. Eternal. Why would you kill anybody who would give that? Why? And the answer is because Jesus must be God. 
And to this day, there are people who do not want to accept that to be true. We're going to learn more about this next week. You're going to say, well, how do we know he has this authority? How do we know this? Well, we're going to be dealing with that in the rest of chapter 5. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as we think about this Jesus who we have come to love, I, I pray that you would not allow me to become so um, comfortable in the love of Christ that I forget that he is my Lord and not just my Savior. That, Lord, you are, you are at work to infuse in me a life-changing response in a dark world so that when I see what is happening around me, I am able to discern the difference between loving God and loving myself or loving the world or whatever else I might fill the blank in. And so when we read those words that are written in chapter 3, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him, the belief is not just that we believe Jesus lived and died and rose again, but we are thoroughly convinced that only through the cross were my sins paid for by him and only through the resurrection am I now granted a relationship with God the Father that I could never have if it wasn't for Jesus. And my prayer is, O oh God, as we walk before you, that we would ask humbly the prayer that Paul prayed in almost every letter he wrote to the church in the early days that we would and of his son the Lord Jesus Christ that we would not be satisfied with a complacent kind of discipleship that we would be satisfied with cultural Christianity but that we would wholeheartedly devote ourselves to the word of God so that we might learn how to love you the way you love Jesus. And in the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden that we may be one even as you and the Son are one. We humbly pray and ask it in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together,